It will certainly be a very memorable period. Already comparisons are being drawn with the 1970s. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. This week, what's going on with the global economy? As the world began to emerge from the pandemic, we were expecting some turbulence, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has upset all predictions. We hear from the chief economist at a global bank. There is definitely going to be a slowdown and some economies are already close to stagnation. Inflation is rising around the world faster than expected, presenting a challenge to central banks which are acting, but in the knowledge that they might not be able to do enough and they could slow economies as populations face a cost of living squeeze. The questions central banks are asking themselves is how much will they have to slow demand and send inflation on a downward path? And what now is the risk of recession? Some countries are seeing it already and millions of individuals whose spending power has been slashed feel they are too. For some people that have accumulated their savings, they can smooth their income. But we know for a lot of people, that's not the same case. And for those people, this will be feeling like something of a recession already. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating and a review and join us on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And as we approach the forum's annual meeting in Davos, this is Radio Davos. With a week to go before the World Economic Forum's annual meeting, it's clear that one of the main topics of discussion will be the global economy. The forum will publish its regular chief economist outlook there, and one of those chief economists who contributes to that survey is Janet Henry, global chief economist at HSBC. She kindly made time for an interview to discuss the headwinds in a global economy battered by COVID-19 and now by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the knock-on effects of that around the world. We spoke about the risks to economic economic growth, trade and incomes, and about the options available or not to economic policymakers. I started by asking Janet Henry about inflation. Well, inflation was already high. And as part of this strength in demand for goods globally, we'd already seen a lot of upward pressure on commodity prices and virtually every type of commodity price. And then with the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and the sanctions that were initially rolled out and then gradually escalated, as well as some degree of retaliation from Russia. And of course, we need to remember some third countries that themselves were facing a sharp surge in food prices from these various commodity price rises. They actually have started to impose some restrictions on on their own exports of certain food products. So all of these factors have lifted inflation to a new high. Most of it has come through in many countries from the from the energy side, um, but not just from oil. Um, Globally, there was oil across Europe, which is clearly much more exposed via um, utility prices, gas and electricity prices. Um, have gone up a lot more. And in a number of countries, particularly some of the emerging economies, the big impact on inflation as a consequence of the the Russia situation has actually been through much higher impacts on, on food prices. So how do you, as a chief economist, predict what could happen next? Because th- th- there are so many more variables in this than there would normally be, I imagine, in a kind of an economic cycle. Well, When we um, look at inflation, we start with certainly currently what's happening on commodity prices. 
But as you say, Robin, it's very difficult to say at the moment what is going to happen to even oil prices. Um, demand was already very strong. We were already seeing quite a lot of discipline from OPEC plus regarding the supply of oil prices. And then we just have to make a judgment call. We have oil analysts, all sorts of institutions make projections for oil assumptions. Um, but we also know that the outlook for oil will hinge very much on what happens regarding the, the war in Ukraine. Um, so we've taken a view that the, the current backdrop is going to be with us for the foreseeable future. Um, for our economic forecast at HSBC, we are working on a range of oil staying in the 100 to 110 dollars a barrel range. Um, and for a, a range of the other um, commodities, first of all, I suppose we need to think about the impacts of, of utility prices. Um, the US, for instance, hasn't seen the big increases in gas prices or utility price rises. That is a European story. So we take um, the, the wholesale prices for, for gas in particular, um, and we assume that there will still be supplies, but that is in itself is, a, is a, an area of uncertainty. And then similarly, we take our analyst forecast for food prices and for a whole range of food um, commodities. But we know that we can't make those forecasts with a huge amount of certainty, whether it's a further rise in prices or indeed um, a further decline um, in prices from here. But that's just the commodity price element. Uh, we need to remember that it's a whole array of input costs for firms that are rising at the moment. And much will depend on how much companies are able to pass through to consumers. Um, some of them are operating with very large margins. Um, some of them already have tighter margins. Uh, we've already got instances, for instance, in parts of Europe where some energy intensive industries like areas of paper manufacturing um, are already um, shortening production hours or even closing factories because they can't make um, the sums work to some degree, um, given the, the extent of the price increases. For other industries where energy makes up a much smaller share of their inputs, they're not seeing the same degree of pressures. So there's a lot we need to consider in terms of the pass through from producer prices into consumer prices. And that will depend on the strength of demand in certain countries. And that's already been a feature of inflation over the last year. You know, everywhere has seen much stronger producer price inflation, but the likes of China has had much slower consumer price inflation. And that's partly because in Asia, the consumer story has been a lot weaker. They've had a much more export and industry-led recovery um, than in, in the West and indeed in emerging economies like Latin America and Central and Eastern Europe. Um, in, the, in all of those economies, and particularly in the advanced economies, it's been a consumer-led recovery, and that consumer strength, that's consumer demand, has allowed companies to be able to pass on those price increases um, onto the consumer side. And then, of course, there is an extra element regarding inflation, and this is really the one that central banks are starting to become increasingly concerned about, which is what do these elevated rates of inflation and the risk that even if they peak out, they're going to take a long time to calm down. Um, what does that mean for the risk of wage pressures building? Again, this varies globally, but clearly in some economies, wage growth is already on an upward trend, but it's still well below inflation. 
And the risk is the longer inflation stays high for, the greater the likelihood that wage growth continues to accelerate and they find themselves in the midst of some kind of wage price spiral. So let's, let's look at the policy options then. Central banks have certain policies they can put in place, but it seems to be with these extraordinary circumstances right now, maybe the policy levers that might have worked in a normal inflationary period might not work so well now. Is that the case? Yes. Well, central banks and monetary policy is really designed to iron out periods of cyclical weakness or cyclical strength in the economy. When demand is just just much, much uh, too weak, um, and certainly when inflation was too low, what they would try to do is stimulate demand by slashing interest rates and by adding an enormous amount of liquidity into the economy. That's certainly what they did at, at the um, you know, following the, the impact of the global financial crisis and at the start of the pandemic. So if we think about those low points of the pandemic when, when demand absolutely plummeted because of such severe restrictions across the board, uh, that, that monetary policy did prevent a systemic financial crisis um, and it did underpin demand. And remember, it also allowed governments to be able to undertake a lot of borrowing and to support the economy through fiscal policy. Now it's a very different situation when a lot of the pressures on inflation are not just driven by the demand side, but by the supply side. Um, so when you've got such severe supply constraints, the questions central banks are asking themselves is how much will they have to slow demand in order to limit inflation rising and send inflation back down on a downward path? And a lot of that is really the open question, how much will they have to slow demand? How much of a sacrifice in growth will they have to pay in order to lower inflation? Um, but also, given the huge amount of uncertainty on the supply side that central banks are facing themselves, the biggest issue at the moment is, is maintaining their credibility. We need to remember for the last three decades, inflation expectations have been really anchored around that 2% kind of level in most of the advanced economies. It had gone a bit too low. Before the pandemic started, they were thinking about how do they shock inflations a little bit higher, at least back towards that 2% level, maybe slightly above. And now they fear their credibility in the other direction. How are they going to re-anchor inflation expectations back down to that 2% level, even if all of these supply challenges mean that it's going to take somewhat longer in order to get that, that inflation back down. But there's only so much central banks can do in this world other than try to maintain their credibility regarding their willingness to take whatever necessary action is required to maintain relatively low and stable inflation. And if they were to increase interest rates by a long way, the usual repercussion of that is, as you said, a slowdown in economic growth. Presumably, that's something they want to avoid in, in most parts of the world. How do you assess the risk now for growth slowing down to dangerous levels or of recession? Is, is that a genuine risk around the world? There have already been some recessions in the world. 
Um, you know, if we look at some of the emerging economies, Brazil, for instance, had, had quite a strong recovery from the pandemic. And it, it, it's historically tended to be a slightly higher inflation economy. And they had very aggressive monetary tightening even in 2021. So even in the second half of last year, Brazil had a recession. Um, and when we think about the advanced economies, um, we know that historically most Fed tightening cycles do end in recession. Um, so since about 1960, um, there have been three soft landings for the US economy, but there have been about eight hard landings um, have followed um, a, a Fed tightening cycle. Um, the timeline has varied. The severity of the recession has varied. So it wouldn't be unusual for a tightening cycle to actually end in, in a recession. Now, clearly, central banks never start a tightening cycle um, intending to deliver a recession, at least not since about 1980. Um, subsequently, as inflation started to come under control, they always begin to tighten policy just to slow demand down a bit, maybe accept a period of below trend growth in order to um, prevent the economy completely overheating and to bring inflation back to more comfortable levels. Um, but they genuinely do not intend to deliver a hard landing. And the difficulty we've got for central banks at the moment is not just what's happening internationally in terms of the, the, the fallout of the, of, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing escalation of sanctions, but also a lot of uncertainties relating to the, the slowdown in China um, as a consequence of what is still largely a zero COVID um, strategy. Um, so it's very difficult to call the timing of the, the reopening that will follow in China and what the global impact of that will be. But even when they look at their domestic economies, they know that there is a severe real wage squeeze at play. Even if we take, for instance, the US, um, where inflation hit eight and a half percent, um, in March, wage growth is still less than 6%, um, even if the, the Fed considers that to be too high. So in any normal world, if it's a real wage squeeze of 2.5% or more, um, and actually we think the squeeze on real incomes in the UK will be more like 4% this year. In the euro area, it might be about 2%. In any normal world, without a doubt, you would be getting a significant consumer recession in this world. What does that actually mean, a squeeze of 4% on on real incomes? That means someone has 4% less income to spend than they had before that. Absolutely. Our forecast for the UK economy this year is that on average, inflation will be over 8% um, for the rest of the year. Um, in fact, the Bank of England recently announced that it, it, it would hit 10% in the final quarter of this year. So if wages are running, you know, as I say, at less than 6%, um, in fact, um, they're, they're currently they're, they're even lower than that, and we've got some tightening of fiscal policy, then what consumers are receiving relative to inflation is less. So in real terms, they are seeing this, this cost of living squeeze. So the question is, are they going to dip into their savings for those people that have accumulated savings? And this is where there is a, a distributional issue. If you look at the, the major advanced economies, whether it's the UK, the Eurozone, um, or indeed the US, in aggregate, 
a, a large amount of savings has been accumulated. We estimate in the US that actually the stock, the excess savings, so the extra savings that people made each month during 2020 and 2021, relative to what they were saving in 2019, is currently equivalent to about 12% of total household disposable income. So, so for some people that have accumulated their savings, they can smooth their income. In real terms, they may be taking home less, but they can draw on this extra savings in order to smooth their spending. But we know for a lot of people, that's not the same case. And for those people, this will be feeling like something of a recession um, already. And, and some of those will either be resorting to borrowing. There is some evidence that we are seeing a pickup in borrowing of consumer credit and on credit cards, um, not just in the US. There's, there's some signs of a pickup um, in the likes of the UK as well. Um, so for those people that can't draw down their, their savings because um, they haven't got any left, um, that they may actually increase their borrowing where possible to, to limit how much they have to cut back on spending. And that's what makes it very difficult to forecast the extent of the slowdown. And there is definitely going to be a slowdown. And some economies are already close to stagnation. Um, the, the, a lot will be determined about how much that cost of living squeeze is offset both by savings and by borrowing. And the cost of living squeeze is truly global, is it? It is um, truly global. Parts of Asia are actually currently registering a much lower rate um, of inflation. Um, and in fact, I, I mentioned that much of Asia hasn't had the same kind of consumer recovery. Um, you know, their, their initial recovery from the pandemic was very much export and industry led. 2022 was meant to be the year of the consumer recovery, especially with, with exports likely to lose steam as, as the global recovery transferred from being goods driven to service sector driven. Um, and obviously, a lot of the Asian economies had started a reopening, um, especially after the Omicron wave um, of the pandemic. So their inflations are a lot lower, um, but there's still going to be some pinch because there are some Asian economies that spend a lot of their income and a lot of their consumer price baskets do comprise um, energy, but particularly food. That's where they'll be seeing the pressures um, as well. Um, but elsewhere, yes, it is globally. Um, I focus so far mainly on the advanced economies. I mentioned the UK, the Eurozone and the US. But when we look at some of the other um, emerging economies, it is really the commodity importers that are going to see um, the most cost of living squeeze. So some of the Central and Eastern European economies, some of the African countries that are big food importers, they're going to see um, more of a hit um, from higher food prices. Commodity producers should be less affected. Oil producers are seeing very big gains um, in terms of their oil revenues and their metal revenues. And in some of those economies, whether it is parts of Latin America um, or indeed um, parts of many of the Gulf countries, um, governments may be supporting the impact on households, um, offsetting some of this inflationary impact that they may be seeing in other areas. Because there was this 
Ipsos poll, Ipsos with the World Economic Forum, into the cost of living crisis across 11 countries. 25% of the public say they're finding it quite or very difficult to manage financially. Two thirds of people in Turkey saying they're just about getting by. It's very, very widespread. What's the, what's the light at the end of a tunnel like that? Because you, you mentioned the inflationary pressure that would come from wage demands. If people want to maintain their standard of living, they need to have a pay rise in line with inflation. The other options, I guess, are targeted government support, as, as you just mentioned. What are the best policies? Is that, is that something you look into? And also, what are the risks from social unrest if people are feeling that, if 66% of your population is feeling it's only just struggling to get by? I mean, is that also something a chief economist would look at? Uh, well, as, as a chief economist, we have to inevitably take account of political decisions. We don't make political forecasts um, in a way that we can say what the direct impact will definitely be based on a political forecast and what that means for the macroeconomic forecast. Um, we respond to political developments as they actually um, occur. But in terms of the cost of living um, impact, you mentioned Turkey. Um, which has actually just overtaken Argentina um, as the highest inflation economy that, that we forecast um, currently. And that is an extreme situation if inflation is all running, already running at, at, at over 60%. Elsewhere, inflation rates are at multi-decade highs, but they are, are far off um, the current rates of inflation that we are seeing in the likes of Turkey and in Argentina. Um, but um, it is increasingly a, a political issue. And when we think about some of the, um, I suppose, the lowest income economies that are particularly dependent on food imports or government subsidised food and governments already have fragile um, fiscal positions, they are very vulnerable. And we've already had Sri Lanka actually default on its hard currency debt um, because that was what a political decision they took in order to offset some of the pain on their population from the impact of this higher food prices and the support that they would need to provide to support their domestic population. We may see some other lower income economies take a similar approach. Then when we turn to some of the more advanced economies in the in the Eurozone, we have seen individual economies already take measures to, to limit the impact of utility price rises. Already in April, um, global oil prices were, were a little bit lower than they were in March. That should already impact, start to impact on the inflation releases as long as you know, we don't see another spike in oil prices. And we've seen the announcement of some subsidies on, on fuel costs um, more broadly. So, so the fiscal side is coming into play through subsidies in certain areas to limit the impact on consumers. Um, somewhere like the UK, um, the, the, the Chancellor had initially hoped, I suppose, that oil prices would be lower later in the year and the rise in wholesale gas prices would be lower later in the year. So had initially announced a programme that would require some of the initial support to be offset um, later in the year. Now, given the current political backdrop or geopolitical backdrop uh, and the current rate of wholesale gas prices, we may just find ourselves later in the year, the government actually having to announce further subsidies 
um, in the face of, of growing need to, to support some of the lower income parts of the population. But, but currently, and it's in the Bank of England forecast, those extra utility price rises that are going to be happening in October, the Bank of England expects it to lift inflation above 10% in the absence of any additional government support. As of now, what are the big things you'll be looking out for that might change your calculations for the economic outlook? Are there big things coming up on the horizon that you'll be waiting to see? There is plenty um, to to focus on in in the coming months. Um, Clearly, um, what happens regarding the the war in Ukraine will still be vitally important globally, and as will um, any further escalation of sanctions that are delivered by the the Western economies in particular. Clearly, there's a lot of uncertainty on the oil side and and the timing of any phase out um, of gas reliance. Um, from the West and indeed the actions from Moscow um, as well could impact on on the economy, particularly if it did lead to an outright disruption um, of gas supplies um, in Europe. I'll also be looking at what's happening in in China. So in terms of the the April data that we've seen, it was very weak. It looks like May is going to be worse, Um, but we are seeing some signs of some of the restrictions in China are being eased in certain areas. And there is a lot of policy support in in the pipeline. So if China's able to reopen and the second quarter does prove to be the worst of of the China activity data, we should be seeing some signs of stabilisation thereafter, given the degree of policy support that's happening. Um, But if Omicron was to evolve further into a new variant or to spread further around the nation, then clearly that could also pose some downside risks to growth for later in the year, that too will impact globally, um, both on the supply side in terms of disruptions, um, as well as the demand side for the rest of the world, given that China is still a vitally important um, export destination um, for nearly every economy um, around the world. And, And all of this clearly matters from a policy perspective, as do domestic reactions in individual economies. I've already talked to some degree about the wage pressures. And and as long as we have got these supply disruptions and price increases, the main channel being from Russia, but now possible supply disruptions um, from China, the longer that that keeps inflation high, it doesn't necessarily need to go higher, but the longer that it keeps it at these very, very high inflation rates, the risk that it feeds through into wage growth. Um, and that would lead to a greater degree of concern by central banks. And as much as they wish to deliver a soft landing, a realisation that in order to restore their credibility, that they might need to accept even a period of economic contraction, some kind of recession in order to, to, to restore um, their credibility. And already we, we've had the Bank of England announce that based on market forecasts for their own policy rates, that actually in 2023, the UK would have some kind of mild contraction on their current forecasts. Do you already have some feeling that you'll look back on this period or that we will look back on this period as one of those pivotal moments or memorable, infamous moments in kind of economic history? You think about the oil shock of the early 70s, which had these global repercussions. Do you think we're in a period comparable to that now, or is it too early to say? 
it will certainly be a very memorable period. And, and you're absolutely right. Already comparisons are being drawn with the 1970s because there are some similarities. And you know, one of the similarities is that by the time we had the oil embargo um, following the Yom Kippur War, that that happened at a time when inflation was already on an upward trend. So now we have a period where inflation was already on an upward trend because of the pandemic. We now have this period of what I call economic conflict because of, of, of the sanctions and some retaliatory action and some third party kind of action. So there are some similarities there. There are also some differences. Um, and that's the case when we compare it to any, any periods of economic history. There's a huge amount to be learned from economic history when thinking about the future. But we need to be able to identify the similarities, but also where things differ. Uh, and one of the areas where, where certain events um, obviously differ is regarding still some degree of flexibility in labour markets and in labour unionisation. There, there is a degree um, of flexibility. There are also certain periods of, of technological um, advance that may be different. One of the comparisons that people are making at the moment is, is clearly for the last 20 or 30 years, we've had not just rapid globalisation, but huge automation um, regarding the goods sector um, in particular. And finally then, on energy, we've talked about natural gas flows, for example, because I'm working on another podcast right now about the energy transition, which primarily is about the transition away from fossil fuels to non-fossil fuel to clean energy. Is that something you look at as, as a chief economist? And if you do, do you have any indication as to whether this situation is putting action to move away from fossil fuels? Is it going to speed that up or is it going to slow it down? In the big picture, I ultimately think the impetus for it will be to, to, to speed it up. But I don't think it's going to be a kind of linear move. Um, we know that part of the issue with the energy sector at the moment is a function of a lack of investment in, in fossil fuels. Um, and now many governments are already resorting to, to incentives um, to, for even more fossil fuel production because of a realisation that as much as renewables have you know, become a lot more cost effective over the course of the last decade, um, a lot of these kind of renewable projects are quite long term and the energy transition is still going to you know, take place over the course of the next couple of decades. So governments are in you know, a challenging position in terms of trying to incentivize fossil fuel producers to fill the near term gap, even in terms of increasing um, domestic exploration in areas where previously they had actually been discouraging them from doing so. Um, and also from a kind of near term um, inflation perspective, we need to know that in a world of, of energy transition related taxes, so the likes of carbon taxes, that, that structurally these could be uh, an upside risk to inflation. There's a whole host of potential structural upsides to inflation, um, as well as still some potential downside risks um, on the inflation side. So yes, I mean, in short, I, I think ultimately it will accelerate it, um, but we won't necessarily see the impact in terms of the reduced reliance of fossil fuels immediately. 
Janet Henry, Global Chief Economist at HSBC. You can follow the highlights of the World Economic Forum annual meeting at our website and across social media using the hashtag WEF22. And Radio Davos will be podcasting from there daily. So please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a rating and a review, and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Editing was by Jerry Johansson, and studio production was by Connor Smith. We'll be back soon with coverage of the annual meeting in Davos, hashtag WEF22. But for now, thanks to you for listening, and goodbye. <laughs>